0: This is America on the Road, named best radio show by the International Automotive Media Conference, and now in its 27th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. General Motors says it will introduce an electrified version of the Chevrolet Corvette as early as next year. We'll give you our thoughts on that. Lincoln has just pulled the wraps off a battery electric SUV, and we'll give you details on that too. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at DrivingToday.com/autoinsurance. That's DrivingToday.com/auto-insurance. Hi, I'm Jack Neerad, and with me is co-host Matt DiLorenzo. No hyphen in there. Matt is the former editor of Rodent Track. I'm the former editor of Motor Trend. We should be blood enemies, but we're not. We're actually buddies. And then we worked together uh, for about a decade at Kelly Blue Book. And uh, so thank you so much for stepping in to guest host,
1: Matt. Really appreciate it. So glad to be here, Jack. What is the vehicle you will be telling us about this week, Matt? I have driven the Toyota Tundra Capstone, which is their high zoot, all-in, luxury version of their full-size pickup truck. Yeah, well, that should be cool. I'd love to hear your report on that. I have not driven
0: that vehicle yet, so I really anticipate your report. I got a chance to drive the 2022 Ford Explorer Timberline. That's the all-new dedicated off-road version of Ford's midsize SUV, and uh, the road test segment is coming up a little later in the show, so stay with us for that. We also have a Terrific interview for you, at least according to me. Our special guest is Colleen Jansen. She's the chief marketing officer at ChargePoint. And of course, ChargePoint is a major player in the vehicle charging industry. And that's vital to growing electrification. So we'll discuss all that with her. And I bet you'll have some thoughts on that too, Matt, in our news segment. Before we do any of that, we're going to be bringing you some of the most important auto-related news from around the world This Corvette story is kind of a big one, isn't it, Matt?
1: Yeah. You know, who would have thought that uh, a front-engine V8-powered American Icon would first become a mid-engine V8-powered American Icon? Now it's going to be a hybrid, and then uh, there's going to be an electric version, according to Mark Royce from GM.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you and I both know Mark very, very well. Uh, He is certainly uh, telling the truth when he's talking about that. So uh, Mm -hmm. we look forward to kicking that around in the next segment. And that's coming up with guest host Matt DiLorenzo. This is Jack Rad with you. Thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with guest host Matt DiLorenzo. This is Jack Red with you. Chris T couldn't be with us this week. A uh, little illness in the family. He, We hope he's back with us next week, but we're so pleased to have Matt DiLorenzo with us. Uh, what a industry veteran, just a knowledgeable guy. And Matt, I bet you have a lot of comments about uh, this news from General Motors that uh, confirms an electrified version of the Corvette sports car and then a full electric version to come. What's your overall take on that before we dive into this a little bit
1: more? You know, it just shows where the industry is headed. Um, I don't, personally, I don't see the the need for it. Um, But, you know, I I like the old front engine version. The mid engine, they did a nice job. I, I admit that. And looking back at the C7, they really did a great job with the, that design and preparing us for that big change so now you look at a corvette and you go well, yeah it's a corvette but it's you know the engine's in the middle now what that engine is in the future we'll see and i'm i'm, I'm a little surprised the fact that they're going to do an electrified version because gm you know killed the volt uh hybrid plug-in hybrid and uh, they said that they weren't going to build any hybrids anymore, that they were just either going to build electrics or gas-powered engines. Well, so. and don't
0: you think that's just window dressing? I mean, this is kind of playing yeah. to Wall Street more than anything else. Because I, I think so. I, and I think we've seen it from uh, some of the exotic car makers, too, where they put some kind of hybrid thing in. And, yeah, there's an electric motor that does a little bit of stuff, and you can call it a hybrid. But uh, I don't know that. The, that vehicle would be much different. Those vehicles would be much different without that. I mean, what's your, yeah. what's your thoughts on that?
1: I, you know, I I agree with you. And I, you know, I think one of the things that they need to be called out on is the fact that their push to electrification is for the rich. You know? Yeah. Um, absolutely, they, it is. Yeah. They they do have the Bolt, but that's like their stepchild. You know, they had the fires with it, and you know, they stopped production of it. And now they're putting all their money into the Altium and they hooked up with Honda to build a, affordable EVs. I, I, this just smacks of more elitism from GM. So I don't... Well, um, and
0: I, I think it goes beyond GM too. I mean, if you look at uh, most of the EVs, they're elite vehicles. I mean, you're hard pressed to find one that's under $40,000 or at least one with 200 miles of range or more, something like that. So the right. vast majority of vehicles that are being introduced now... Um, are for very well-to-do people i mean it's certainly not for uh, joe and jane lunch
1: bucket that's for certain i think the other thing is to get more clarification on on this and you know does this mean that the corvette will become a pure electric and you can't buy a gas version of them I, I, I don't know. I, I think it, it raises more questions than it answers. Yeah, I mean, according
0: to to Royce, they will be building, at least for some time, some internal combustion engine uh, Corvettes at the same time as building electrified Corvettes or electric, full electric battery electric Corvettes. Of course, they say they're going to sell nothing but electric vehicles by 2035. Uh, and, you know uh, and That isn't that, too far off,
1: right? It isn't. And contrast that with what Ford just said about the Windsor plant. They're going to be building internal combustion engines through 2040. So, you know, if I were going to bet money on a company, I'd bet it on Ford. They're they're wisely moving forward saying we're going to have a foot firmly planted in both the electric camp and in the internal combustion camp. And uh, there's nothing that tells me that it's going to be one or the other. It's going to be both.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of virtue signaling going on right now about electrics and, you know, bold uh, predictions and and bold assertions yeah. about what uh, being full electric by a particular date. Often, in that date is twenty thirty five, and that strikes me as way too soon.
1: Well, I I agree, and I I you know the other thing I think is that just because. People like us are saying that ain't going to happen. Doesn't mean that we can't see the virtue in electric vehicles. We do. I yeah. think they're great. I think they're terrific. I think they, they have a role to play in our in a, in our transportation uh, landscape. But you know, this all or nothing. I'm, I'm getting a little tired of that sort of view of the world that it's either uh, fossil fuel or uh, or or all electric or want to take one or the other. So.
0: Yeah, and basically trash all your fossil fuel ve- vehicles and go all electric or you're um, you know out there to damage the planet and uh, ruin everybody's lives, which uh, yep. I, I don't think is quite the case. Well, I wrote a piece about the Lincoln Star concept. Uh, it's uh, the newest concept from Lincoln with the Ford luxury brand trying to get into the EV game with a battery electric luxury SUV. Uh, they want to compete, of course, with the Cadillac Lyric that is set to go on sale momentarily, I think, is a 2023 model year vehicle. Um, there are others in that segment. And as we just talked about, uh, electric vehicles make a lot more sense. And uh, we're seeing many more of them on the uh, luxury elite side, partly because batteries are largely, I think, because batteries are so darn expensive. But we see the Audi e-tron, the Jaguar I-Pace, there's a Volvo XC40 uh, that I've been driving recently, and the BMW iX are among them. Uh, Lincoln didn't announce uh, a bunch of uh, details about this vehicle. They did say, though, that they're going to have, by mid-decade, three fully electric
1: vehicles. Uh, comment? <laughs> What's your <laughs> comment there? Well, it, you know, that's, that's the market. I mean, that's SUVs are hot. Luxury vehicles are hot and now luxury electric SUVs are hot. So I think they're just trying to get into the game. I do give them credit. They do offer a couple of plug-in hybrids in the Corsair and in the Aviator. Um, And I think that that's a viable path towards electrification. And I think think a lot of times companies get overlooked for those efforts. Um, the the thing that's going to get the ink and in, like you said earlier about uh, playing the Wall Street are are vehicles like this, and the way that they introduced it too is that they you know they did an evening launch. I think it was an online thing. You know, it was just there to generate publicity uh, more than anything else. I don't you know they're not specific on numbers how big that market is how much this thing is going to actually cost. Yeah, they uh, were. There's uh, there's specifics of, we'll
0: were here. <laughs> were very lacking, for sure. They did say, however, that more than half of Lincoln's global volume will be zero emissions vehicles. So, you know, read electric vehicles by the middle of this decade. I mean, the middle of this decade is <laughs> isn't very far two model, two, off, especially in, years in away. Yeah, in in um, car manufacturer terms, so we're right on top of that.
1: Well. Uh, you know, you can look at it as another way. Are, are Lincoln vehicles selling that poorly that they can actually do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Like one out but of the two, two vehicles, vehicles sold will be electric. Sudden, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. half our vehicles are electric. I mean, you know, um, the Navigator is really a, a, a great vehicle, but I don't think it sells anywhere near in the numbers that the Escalade does. Um, the, the Aviator is a terrific vehicle. But again, I, I just don't see, you know, Lincoln is not selling at the volumes uh, that they were 15 years ago.
0: Right, so, certainly not in the United States. I think Lincoln might be doing much better in China, uh, right. where a, a battery electric is, is liable to play. This I got a kick out of this, Matt, and I want to see what you say about that. Of course, Lincoln's thing is uh, tranquility and uh, being a, you know, a place to uh, just rejuvenate. And one of the things that uh, is offered in the Star Concept is three rejuvenation moods, Coast, coastal morning, mindful vitality, and evening chill, and they get there by using audio, animation, lighting, and sense, and sense s c n t s. You know, smells. Yeah. Uh, so you got ocean waves, the smell of sea mist, and the simulated glow of the sun. <laughs> for, for one of them.
1: You know, I think uh, Mercedes does something similar too. They have fragrances in their vehicles, so um, uh, it's I. You know. Who knows? Uh, you know, it's everything is marketing and trying to appeal to a certain you know demographic and make them feel special. And if that's what it takes, that's what it takes.
0: Yeah, I see us as re- car reviewers going. Well, I didn't like the way this car smelled that much.
1: Yeah, th- yes, vision. You know, it's you know, like- and Lincoln was the one too. Remember, they did the chimes where they 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 have this whole different set of chimes that were recorded by the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, I think – and and this underscores what's going on with electrification is the fact that drive trains and all this other stuff are commodities now. There's not – there's, you know, one battery isn't – you know, the things that will distinguish you are like range and you might have a more powerful motor. But the way they operate, because they're quiet, there isn't an engine note or there isn't – you know. So I think this is part of a larger picture where people are trying to drive some sort of – personality into their vehicles and these are the lengths that they will go to do that.
0: Yeah. Going to uh, very, very long lengths and uh, reaching uh, way beyond what we think a, a motor car would normally do. Well, when we come back we will be doing our vehicle review segment and we have the Toyota Tundra Capstone with Matt DiLorenzo's take on that and I was driving the Ford Explorer Timberline. So stay with us for that right here on America on the Road. Welcome back to America on the Road with Matt DiLorenzo. This is Jack red with you. It is road test time. We're excited about the road tests we have for you this week. And Matt uh, DiLorenzo, our guest host, was driving a, a vehicle I have yet to drive. It is the ultimate version of the
1: Toyota Tundra pickup truck. Matt, tell us about it. Well, Toyota uh, has redesigned its uh, half-ton Tundra pickup truck for the first time in, I don't know, like 14 years and uh, they've decided to add a new top level trim. You know, you, you see these as like Platinums or Limiteds or uh, they call theirs the capstone. And um, it's an interesting vehicle because it um, doesn't come with a V8. The new, the new uh, biggest spec engine you can get is a turbocharged three and a half liter V6 hybrid. And it makes uh, 437 horsepower and and 538 pound feet of torque, so it's got plenty of um, plenty of grunt to it. So, you know, from a from a driving perspective, it's really a nice truck. They've gone to an independent rear suspension. It's a lot more comfortable. It's a big truck. It's bigger than the truck it replaced, which is something that all pickup trucks seem to be doing. And um, uh, they have all the bells and whistles you'd you'd want. You know, leather interior and premium sound system, extra insulation to make the cabin quieter. One of the things I
0: wonder, Matt, is, is it big enough? I mean, it's bigger than the previous <laughs> Tundra, and yet I don't know that it's exactly as big as, say, the F one fifty, Ford F-150 or the Chevy Silverado. Uh, no. And I'm wondering if that's what is demanded in that
1: segment. You know, I... I wonder, you know, they they did give it a much bolder look. I mean, it's taller. It's got a huge grill., um, it has that kind of presence that the other trucks have. Um, but you know they've they've been climbing up a, a, a tall mountain to try and get up there with um, with Ford and Chevy. And the only one who's been able to do it really has been Chrysler with the Ram. and they they started a lot long. A lot longer time ago with having kind of a rugged truck, you know, kind of, uh, look to their vehicles and they've been more successful than Toyota has. I think Toyota has always put a premium on on personal use and um, higher trim levels like this one is and and uh, they've not they don't have the reputation of also having kind of a work truck. And so as a result, uh, the Tundra has a, a kind of a unique space. It's certainly much more successful than the Nissan Titan, but it's still uh, not even a junior member when it comes to sales uh, volume of um, domestic pickups.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is one area where the big three or what we used to refer to the big three is still dominant. Uh, one of the very few, if it, maybe the only
1: area where they're still dominant. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that uh, maybe Toyota has missed uh, missed the mark a little bit. I mean, uh, granted, you have to hit the fuel economy numbers, and and certainly the output of the um, the hybrid pow- powertrain is right there from a competitive point of view. But it doesn't have a V eight, and I think that's kind of shorthand that uh, uh, for expectations for people buying these trucks is still. A significant portion of them who want V8 power, uh, and um, although you know Ford has had some success with their um, with their uh, EcoBoost V6, EcoBoost V6. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the market is changing slowly. Maybe it's coming their way, um, but certainly they, you know, they know that even if they're not going to sell a lot of trucks. Every truck that they sell, they want to make a ton of money on. And that's what the capstone is all about. And, you know, it's a very expensive truck and it's, um, uh, you know, it has a has a uh, it starts at seventy three thousand dollars. Oh, my. And
0: is there anything, you know, specific about it that you would say, wow, this is terrific. This, you know, they really knocked it out of the park with with this particular thing.
1: I You know, I think from a drivability point of view, they have. It's very quiet, it's very comfortable, and it drives much smaller than the exterior would suggest. So from that point of view, from a personal personal use point of view, yes, um, whether it's worth seventy three thousand dollars, that's up to, you know, if if you got to have it, That's what you have. You know, it's kind of funny. They did have two other premium. They still have a platinum trim level and they have the 1794 trim level, which is actually for people looking for trivia is the year that the ranch was founded on which the factory outside of San Antonio was built. Ah. on the property. Yeah, so talk about quite, esoteric. <laughs> it's really, but it has sort of, you know, it's kind of like the King Ranch kind of, you know, it's got a little bit more Western flavor with a saddle hide, um, leather interior and that kind of thing. It, it really is skewed towards the premium, premium truck market. And if you're just looking for a basic, you know, knock around work, cheap pickup truck, um, they're kind of telling you to go somewhere else.
0: But it sounds like an interesting vehicle for the right buyer. You're just Mm -hmm. specializing in the luxury end of the pickup truck segment, and yet not necessarily as large as some of the other ones out there. Well, I was driving the Ford Explorer Timberline, and in a year when Explorer has not changed hardly at all, um, that is the new thing to talk about in this line. Of course, the uh, formula in uh, the Explorer has been simple for a long time. It's a mid-sized three-row SUV suitable for families, it can be equipped with all-wheel drive. A great many of them have all-wheel drive. But in the past decade or so, very few of them have stressed any kind of off-road uh, abilities, even though they kind of have had reasonable off-road abilities. You know, I've driven, the, uh, driven them off-road and uh, pretty good capability there. But the Explorer Timberline makes that planer. Of course, there's a, a lot of vehicles now competing in that segment, this kind of sub-segment of off-road oriented mid-size SUVs. There is the 4Runner TRD Pro. Drove that and talked about it on the show fairly recently. The Honda Passport Trail Sport. Of course, the Jeep Grand Cherokee Trailhawk, which we've talked about too. I'm What's your take on uh, kind of this off-road revival that's going on in the midsize
1: segment, Matt? I think you have to look at it as kind of a continuum from, uh, I think the Trailhawk is really a serious off-road package, uh, TRD Pro, uh, likewise at at Toyota. You get into some of these other ones, like the Trail Sport, the current one with the Explorer, and things like, uh, I think there's an XRT package that Hyundai is offering, and they're more the look that I can go off-road, then I can really go off-road. I mean, you might get a little bit more ground clearance, but it's more an appearance package than adding anything in the way of real um, hardcore off-road uh, hardware. Especially
0: things like a, a two-speed transfer case or something like that right. that you see in, in many of these. Here, Here's kind of the, the stuff that they have added to the Explorer to make it a Timberline. It has the increased ground clearance that you just talked about. They have improved the approach and departure angles, so a new front end, and uh, they have that stuff. It has a Torsen limited slip differential, so that helps, uh, certainly with traction. It has a, a revised suspension with new shocks, springs, and stabilizer bars that are designed for off-roading. It has skid plates, so that's good, all-terrain tires. I think it's got some of the right stuff. It, it doesn't necessarily change the driveline as much as you would say have in, say, a Grand Cherokee Trailhawk or something like that, that is really dedicated uh, as out the door. But I think there's some reasonable changes here. And I think this is for, uh, you know, kind of light to medium duty, maybe uh, a little bit of heavy duty, but mostly medium duty off-roading, the type that a family three-row vehicle would uh, be involved in. Uh, The base price on the vehicle was about $50,000, $49,000. That includes the destination charge. So I think there's a lot to like about this vehicle in terms of looks. I like the looks of it. My wife didn't like the looks of it at all. So I, I think it's appealing to the more masculine side of the the demographic. What do you think overall uh, about looks and uh, that feature set, Matt?
1: Well, I think it's pretty good. I mean, I think that hits sort of the middle of that continuum I, I talked about earlier. I, I think the other interesting thing about the Explorer that's lost on a lot of people is when they went through the last generational change on it, the the previous model had a transversely-mounted engine that would drive the front wheels in two-wheel drive. This new one has a longitudinal-mounted engine that drives the rear wheels. This is a significant difference because what you're doing is you're splitting up the driving from the steering and, and with the rear-drive models. And it's, it's better adapted for, for towing. And then on top of it, when you bring back in the all-wheel drive capability it will perform better off-road than some of these uh, vehicles that are biased towards front drive. So I think the bones on the vehicle are really, really good for that. this type of application. Um, you know, I think the thing is that people want to look like they can go off-road in addition to yeah. actually going off-road. Well, and
0: this has that. It also has a 2.3-liter turbocharged four-cylinder engine. We talked about that kind of stuff out of a Ford Motor Company recently. They've Uh, been successful with these EcoBoost engines. 300 horsepower, 310 pound-feet of peak torque, so that's good. 10-speed automatic transmission. So the fuel economy is is pretty reasonable for a vehicle like this. 19 miles per gallon in the city, 23 on the highway, 21 miles per gallon combined. That doesn't sound spectacular, but for a 3 row vehicle, that's very, very good, actually. And it uh, will also tow, as you mentioned, with this kind of rear drive-biased platform that it's on. It'll tow 5,300 pounds. So I I think there's many things to like about the Timberline package. It also has off-road driver aids, a terrain management system uh, that has various modes that you can click it into, normal, trail, deep snow, and sand. There's slippery mode, sport mode, and tow haul mode as well. So overall, I think... uh, a lot to like about the uh, Timberline for that, you know, medium level of off-roading. And I think you, you pretty much like the uh, Toyota Tundra Capstone as well, didn't you, Matt?
1: Yep. I think, uh, you know, if you're going to use a truck as luxury transportation, it certainly um, checks a lot of the boxes.
0: So those are our uh, test vehicles for this week. When we come back, we will be interviewing Colleen Jansen. She's the chief marketing officer at ChargePoint. And, of course, they're a major player in the vehicle charging industry, so we'll see what she has to say about that. Thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road, and stay with us for that interview. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jack Red with you, and we are at the J.D. Power Automotive Summit in Las Vegas. And what a terrific guest for you, apropos to what we've been speaking about on the show for a long time. Colleen Jansen is chief marketing officer at ChargePoint. EVs, is big stuff, right? I mean, tell our listeners, number one, uh, about ChargePoint, because you're, you kind of have your fingers in a bunch of different uh, aspects of the whole EV thing, don't you?
2: Yes, absolutely. Jack, thanks so much for having me. Um, It's a privilege to be with you. So at ChargePoint, we have a vision, which is that all people and packages can move around the planet powered by electricity. It's kind of a bold vision. We got started in 2007, long before you could walk into a dealership and buy an electric vehicle. So what kind of crazy company get started before you can actually buy the car. It's, you know, a group A of visionary co- company, yeah, I would a, think, right? Yeah, a company that really saw that this can work. Electricity is pervasively distributed, and if we run on electric fuel, we actually can do the planet a favor.
0: So let's get into the, the more nitty-gritty of it, right?
2: All right, let's
0: go. Uh, and, well, and in fact, the panel you talked about, uh, you were just on, talked a bit about um, the pain points in electric vehicle adoption and overcoming them because that's what your company is all about, I think, right? So tell us a, a little bit about what the experience is. Maybe uh, approaching it from the pain point, po- point of view is not the best way to approach it, Let's, point, uh, let's take a look at it from the advantages point of view and, and what the experience is really
2: like. Yeah, so I've been driving electric since 2011, and that was, you know, a, a much different experience back then. The cars didn't necessarily have the range. There was not as much of the charging infrastructure out there, but what I learned very quickly uh, it started for me as an experiment driving electric, and I learned very quickly that I was never going to go back to fueling and driving the old way. So for me, the you know less maintenance, a lower cost of fueling, and just the sort of ease and convenience of always leaving wherever I'm, you know departing from with a full battery means I never have to make a separate stop for fueling. So, you know, if we had alien eyes and we dropped down on the planet and we looked at how we fuel today with liquid fuels, it's kind of crazy, right? We take these flammable liquids that have, you know, very specific properties, have to be treated a certain way, and we put them in, you know, very distinct locations, and then we sort of, you know, use our eyes to find them conspicuos- conspicuously located adjacent to where we, you know, are traveling. And you know for me i'm a busy person right i i work a lot i i've got a lot going on and that notion of not having to make fueling a separate stop really meant that i could drive a better way and so we know that when we're asking people to adopt evs we're asking them to do something different and the number one rule they teach you in marketing school is don't ask people to change their behavior because they don't like change. So we think of it as we have to actually make it meaningfully easier for people to drive electric because we're asking them to change.
0: You really are, and that's the important thing. And it's a misconception, I think, that people have who have not driven electrics or experienced them. They're looking to do the replicate what they do with a gasoline car. That's right. You know, I, I need to find a gas station. I'm going to drive this until, you know, I'm down into a quarter of a tank and then I fill up and then, you know, I'm good for a week and a half and on, off I go. That's not the experience you would have. That isn't even a particularly good experience uh, compared to essentially being full up every day with a, a charge, right? But it is a different behavior, right? So tell us how you get there. How do you get people to change that perception of what needs to be done?
2: Well, you know, one of the things that I encourage people to do who are thinking about buying an EV is I encourage them to talk to someone who owns one. Talk to someone who's been driving electric. And I see this often kind of spread within a neighborhood. You know, somebody comes home with an EV and then they're talking to their neighbor. How's that thing work? How much mileage do you get? You know, how often are you charging? How much does it cost you? And so you know, a lot of times the EV drivers are the ones that can really tell you what it's like. We see in the data at ChargePoint that within a couple of days, the drivers figure it out. They figure out that they're gonna charge while they sleep or while they work because that's where they spend time. And when a car is not moving a person or a package around, which is 96% of the time, it's pretty crazy, right? Cars only have utilization about 4% of the time. That's a really good time to charge while it's not doing anything else. So just like your cell phone, you're going to charge it while you're doing something else. Well,
0: they figure it out, but they're forced to figure it out, too, right? I mean, it, there's no other way to go about this. And, and based on the limitations of, of EVs, you kind of have to deal with the fact that it's going to be a different experience. It's not necessarily a worse experience. In, in a lot of ways, it might be a much better experience. But it certainly is a different experience, right? And the, op- the opportunity, I, I have profiled who would be the prime EV um, prospect, Ooh, right? Okay. And it would be somebody who's fairly well-to-do, who lives in a temperate climate, probably lives in a, a single-family home. And those are the folks, I think, that are absolutely have no issue with EVs, right? They They, they put in a home charger, they do everything you say. Uh, it's those people who don't have that kind of situation. And they live in an urban and, or suburban environment where they're not traveling very far. They're, so they're not doing a long commute or something like that. Number one, there's a lot, a lot of people just like that, right? I mean, that's a giant market to begin with. But then you're reaching out to people that are w- way different than that too. So t- tell us about, number one, your reaction to that, and, th- and number two how you're going beyond that group.
2: Yes, well, as you described the profile of that EV driver, what immediately came to mind for me is, yes, a number of years ago, that was the case. It was the more affluent um, you know, individual who could afford an EV, because in, in the earlier days, these were you know, not at price parity. We are reaching price parity. There's a used EV market that is starting to develop in a meaningful way. And um, you know, someone who has the luxury of having dedicated parking and an attached garage and the ability to have a home charger and invest in that. But that profile is really changing. And we see people of all different, um, you know, profiles interested in and adopting EVs. And it really all starts with the car. So first of all, Americans buy their cars on disaster scenarios, right? And it also is a reflection of your personality. So you want a car that fits your lifestyle and can do what you need it to do, whether that's a bunch of equipment for the kids and the soccer games, or that's hauling something, or, you know, a wagon for the dog with a hatch that makes it easy. Um, and, so and not
0: something that you do all the time, but something you might do some of the time, right? right? I occasions. mean, that, that's why we see a lot of, you know, alone people in giant three-row SUVs, for example.
2: That's right, that's right. And so you need Mm. to have hundreds of miles of range for when you take a road trip. For Americans, that's not as often. I know this is a topic dear to your heart. (laughs) Um, So, you know, you want to have a great experience on the road trip. Um, But also, as the vehicles are shipping with hundreds of miles of range, we're sort of moving away from the plug-in hybrid model. It's really going to a big BEV market, battery electric vehicles with hundreds of miles of range. You don't really have to worry as much about the distance that you're traveling, the temperatures, etc.
0: Okay. I think I would have to worry still. Okay. Uh, because I'm a, you know, thousand mile a day kind of guy, which there aren't too many of those people out there. You, maybe, you are
2: unique in m- that Maybe
0: case. not even, you know, 500 miles a day, but 500 miles, a, you know, that's, you know, throw that off. That's pretty easy to don't,
2: do. Don't you ever want to pull over and get a coffee or walk I the don't dog? want
0: to do that for 40 minutes. I don't want to do that, you know, I want to do that for five minutes. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big proponent of electric vehicles. I love them. I, they are terrific to drive. They have so many, so many advantages to them. I also want my listeners, though, to know what it's really like. Yes. And so, why don't you walk them through uh, kind of the ownership situation? You've been doing this for you know more than ten years. Tell us uh, about you know what your day is like or what a week is like with an electric vehicle versus what you had before.
2: Well, for me, the luxury is really leaving my home always with that possibility of I'm, I'm completely topped up. And when I went from having a vehicle that had, you know, a modest amount of range to one that had hundreds of miles of range, I actually had to train myself. You know, at the beginning, I was, Colleen, always be charging. ABC, always be charging. Mm-hmm. And as I had a vehicle with hundreds of miles of range, I realized, you know, I don't need to be plugging in every time I get home. Um, but for me, the luxury of having home charging, it's connected to my utility rate plan. I have scheduled charging. My phone tells me, hey, did you know you haven't plugged in yet? I can ask Alexa, how many miles of range have I added if I don't want to traipse out and check, you know, if my car right. is charged or not. So, you know, integrating into all of the tools and 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 platforms that we have come to rely on as consumers you know i love when i am out running errands i shop and there's charging in front of the store i can tap my smartwatch to start a charging session i can use my digital payment tools um, in my digital wallet i don't have to fumble around with an rfid card if i'm out of a you know in an area that doesn't have charge point charging i can use another network but use my charge point credentials to do it you know this is kind of like atms in the early days right where there's roaming and the networks are working cooperatively with one another to make it a seamless experience and increasingly we're starting to show up in the vehicle itself so through the auto oems proprietary in vehicle systems in there, in popular mapping tools like Google Maps and Apple Maps, Android Auto, CarPlay, all of those platforms that power all those vehicle experiences that consumers know and love. Yeah, let's
0: look at this from the macro point of view, because okay. we just kind of looked at the micro, right? But what it's like day to day. As an organization, a visionary organization, uh, you know, launching into an area where you weren't sure there was a market. Now you've got to have a pretty good idea that there's going to be a market, that it's going to be fairly big. But how big? You know, We've seen all kinds of predictions about EV penetration in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of all over the ballpark, but it strikes me a lot of them are very, very optimistic about EV adoption. Where do you stand on that? Where, where does ChargePoint stand? And where do you think this is going to be in, say, 2030? You know, what kind of penetration? What, what number of units in operation are those kind of – because you have to be concerned about that, right, as an organization.
2: You know, when you look at what percentage of e- uh, vehicles purchased are electric – we're starting to see the percentages creep up, and we're starting to see in some countries, in Germany, we're in the double digits, and it's really increasing in velocities. And
0: and you, as an organization, service that kind of thing too. I mean, you're just not reliant on individual car owners uh who buy a charge point system for
2: that's them. right that's right and in fact we're selling our primary businesses we're selling to businesses who want to offer charging so we don't monetize charging to the driver whether the stations are used or not those businesses are paying us a monthly software subscription keep everything connected handle everything that's happening in the parking lot or in the depot whether that's a city running electric buses or it could be a grocery store offering charging. They don't want somebody coming in and asking the cashier on check stand five, "How does this charging work?" They pay us to take care of all that.
0: Well, Colleen Jansen, I think we could go on for another hour. I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to question you about so many things and and put that in front of our listeners. But we're out of time for this. So thanks so much for being with us. Uh, You're the chief marketing officer for ChargePoint.
2: Thanks so much for being with us.
0: We appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Jack. It was a delight.
0: And stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. Welcome back to America on the Road with guest host Matt DiLorenzo. This is Jackie right back with you for question and answer time. Christine can't be with us this week, but we hope he's back with us next week. We're so happy to have Matt with us, uh, automotive expert par excellence. And I have a great listener question for him because it is listener question time. And this is from Leon in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Leon says this, now that Tesla is being challenged by new startups and by established car makers, who do you think will become the dominant car maker? Tesla? One of the other startups? Or will the uh, car companies, the established car companies, I guess he's saying, fight off the competition and remain dominant? What's your
1: take on that, industry observer Matt DiLorenzo? <laughs> well, to answer Leon's question, I think it's going to be a traditional manufacturer selling both electric and gas cars. Um, I don't think the country is uh, – and the infrastructure is ready for a wholesale transformation of the fleet overnight to electric – so as long as people need cars, other you know need vehicles for other purposes, and, and need to go to places where they can't recharge, we're going to have fossil fuel-powered vehicles at least for the next 10-15 years. So I I see it as um, you know who I'm betting on is Toyota. Yeah, <laughs> they're they're dominant now. I don't they're they're. Coming to the, you know, and I think that that's the thing is you can be late to the electric game if you have the infrastructure to be able to build units at an affordable price. It doesn't matter if you're if if you're leading the charge or you're bringing up the rear. If you if you have uh, the distribution network, the manufacturing network, and the technology at a price that's affordable, you're going to win. And I think keeping a foot in both camps, and you said
0: Ford Motor Company was doing that. So obviously uh, yep. they are doing that too. On the other hand, General Motors is going gung-ho. Uh, we're going to be all electric all the time by 2035. Uh, so uh, I just don't think the infrastructure is out there. And these, uh, w- the untold story on these vehicles that have 250 miles of range is it takes forever to recharge them using level two charging, which is the kind of charging you're going to find at many of the uh, public charging uh, stations out there these days.
1: Yeah, and I, I think the other thing too is is what these manufacturers define as success. So if I make the switch to totally electric and I'm selling high margin electric vehicles to a, lux- uh, a luxury market, I can win on Wall Street. I could be making a lot of money, but I'm not gonna be serving the larger, larger transportation needs of this country. So, you know, the the mass makers will be the ones who will be able to serve all markets and not just the electric market.
0: Very good analysis, Matt. And thanks so much for being with us again this week. We appreciate your guest hosting with us, Matt DiLorenzo. Thanks, Jack. It's great being here. And thanks so much for being with us. Uh, all you listeners out there, we do appreciate that. And our thanks to the Map Radio network stations that carry America on the road. And join us again next week for another edition of America on the Road. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and drivingtoday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. California save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at drivingtoday.com slash auto insurance. That's drivingtoday.com slash auto hyphen insurance. Put that hyphen in there. And if you're looking for auto information about a new car, used car, just care about cars. Go to drivingtoday.com the official automotive website of America on the Road, drivingtoday.com.